Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people, but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. And today I'm talking to Professor Edith Hall, academic and author, about Aristotle, class, growing up as a vicar's daughter and new daimonia. When I was on my health journey, losing weight and getting fit, I had to lay down new habits. And one of the books that really helped me on that journey was a book called Aristotle's Way by Edith Hall. And in my world, what it really showed me was that Aristotle was the first ever self-help guru. Edith's got a slightly more insightful view of Aristotle than that. But her writing is so accessible. I wanted to talk to her about what drove her to bring the classics to a wider audience. And you can see in our conversation, she's one of life's natural enthusiasts. Edith, thanks so much for giving me your time. I don't think you quite realise what an influence you've had on me, (laughs) but I want to explain why that is. At the age of 51, I realised that Though I was moderately successful in my chosen career, everything I'd done in life was a reaction to things. I'd fought against a small town, parochial, Midlands childhood during the Thatcher years. I'd hit London and I was sneered at by well-educated liberal metropolitan elites. And I worked harder, became moderately successful. And then at 51, I suddenly realised I didn't need to do that. But for the next 51 years, I wanted to live a positive and purposeful life. And then I read Aristotle's Way, who in my book is the world's first ever self-help guru. And you write this book about Aristotle's life and the arc of a life. And there's all sorts of Aristotelian wisdom and logic in there that made a lot of sense to me. So can I first talk to you about Aristotle and what influence he's had on you and why you evangelise him in the modern world? Okay, well, Aristotle um, has been doing for me what he started doing for you at 51. He's been doing that for me since my early 20s. And he literally, I think, did save my life. I had a lot of trouble with depression as a young person, which was related to simply not having any kind of ethical system or sense of morality of my life. I was brought up in a very strict Christian household. My father was a vicar and a theologian. Oh, he still is. (laughs) He's in his 90s. But with ideology, I would put somewhere in the 1850s, sort of muscular Christianity. And at 13 years old, I simply stopped believing a word of it. And this is where your words about a reaction to a small town Midlands upbringing. I was brought up in Nottingham. 
in this very Christian house. I think I have been reacting my entire life. But what Aristotle helped me realise was that reaction can actually become a positive thing rather than a negative thing. And so that I could, uh, instead of a sort of religious doctrinal system, which I found incredibly repressive, and it was particularly bad for girls in those days, long before women were allowed to be priests and so on, find a way to make my life meaningful for myself, but without losing the desire to be a good person. Because when I lost that at 13, I could see absolutely no reason whatsoever to try to be virtuous if I wasn't going to be punished in any afterlife. And if there was no such thing as an interventionist God who was going to smite me with a thunderbolt if I was bad. On the contrary, everything about capitalism in the 1970s and 1980s was telling me that what you're supposed to do is grab the most land you can for yourself and devil take the hindmost. We have this very, very contradictory ideology under the economic system that we've got, which actually applauds selfishness and kicking other people down the ladder while also sort of telling you in other ways through movies and fictions and so on that it's important to be good. So it was only when I started reading Aristotle, I was one of the very last beneficiaries of the Butler Education Act. I was one of the very last people to get a grammar school scholarship in Nottingham County and got Latin and Greek, went to Oxford and was offered Aristotle in conjunction with Greek tragedy. And I simply couldn't believe my eyes. For seven years, 13 to 21, I had absolutely been in a moral wilderness with no sense of why there was any point in trying to do the right thing by anybody. And this showed me that there was something massive in it for me, that if I tried really hard to develop my own life along the lines I wanted it and was treated everybody else with consideration, I would be much more likely to be happy. And it works. You're happy now. Yeah, I absolutely think I'm as happy as I could possibly have been given the cards I was dealt with at birth and the combination of good and bad luck that everybody gets. I think that I have maxed out my potential for happiness. But it's not a state that you arrive at. You have to keep doing it every day. I mean, if I started treating people really badly tomorrow, <laughs> you, know, you can wreck it all. <laughs> the idea, as Aristotle saw, was that if you start doing it really self-consciously, just like driving a car, sooner or later, things do become much more habitual, you know, that you start smiling at people in a kind way, habitually. You start not getting angry too suddenly, habitually. I've also struggled with my weight. I know you have. You know, you start habitually just actually preferring the fish and the salad after a while. And the good sense of it, what is amazing about it is that the technical term for it is peripatetic philosophy, which means the philosophers who walk around, because he liked Aristotle liked to stride around while he uh, talked, harnessing the rhythm of walking to the development of the argument and doing it with other people and talking to them. And the good sense of it is just absolutely staggering. And I have thought a lot about, and because I'm an academic and teach ancient Greek philosophy, this is only one of six ancient Greek philosophical schools that had an ethical system that wasn't religious. I mean, they were so brilliant. They got there. We didn't get anywhere like back to this until after the Enlightenment, that you could actually develop an ethical system that was secular for virtue, both as an individual and as a citizen of a community. But the other ones, for me, Stoicism, Platonism, 
Epicureanism, cynicism, none of them do it for me. This one does it for me. And I think it's by far the most 21st century. You see, you take on the Stoics a little bit. I think in the book, there's a lovely line where you say, Stoicism does not encourage the same joie de vivre as Aristotle's virtues. Absolutely. (laughs) This is about a whole load of self-help gurus, usually on the West Coast of America, telling us the Stoics teach us to accept our miserable lives. I mean, Basically, a bunch of people who are actually interested in things like cognitive behavioural therapy have decided they can monetize the ancient Stoa and they set up this thing called Stoicon and they make vast amounts of money by getting people to sort of go to Athens for annual conferences. But to my mind, completely misrepresent the ancient Stoic texts. There is no ancient Greek or Roman word for mindfulness, for example. (laughs) And I once asked one of the chief advocates of Stoicism for that. And of course, he doesn't even know Latin and Greek and has never read Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus in any detail. But that's fine. They do what they do. I'm not really trying to monetize it. I have written a book and I'm glad to say that the advance allowed us to get rid of our mortgage last time we moved. (laughs) But that isn't my ambition. I, I am, I think, a secular missionary. And I think I've got that sort of from my father, the idea that what I believe in can genuinely help other people and do good. But it's a secular system which makes it ideal for a multicultural society that is post religious fanaticism. Because you can graft these ideas onto any kind of religious background, any kind of spiritual past. It's even quite compatible with modern psychotherapy because Aristotle didn't divide emotions, the body and the mind the way Plato did. He sees them all as a a whole and that man is an animal. That is his starting point. Humans are simply advanced animals. That's why Darwin loved him so much. The great problem with most ancient philosophy, including Stoicism and Platonism, is that there's this huge mind-body split which was inherited by Christianity. So body is bad, spirit and mind, and the incorporeal are good. Apart from anything else, I think that's all very, very deeply sort of sexist. <laughs> it's like male brain is good. Women sort of, you know, breastfeed and lactate and grow babies and so on and, and are close to nature. Aristotle thought body was a marvellous, marvellous thing and that physical pleasure was a guide to the good. This thing you mentioned earlier about reaction, this is the righteous indignation idea, is it? Yeah. You're right to be angry about injustice if the level of injustice is so great that it requires a response of that magnitude. Is that, have I got that kind of right? Yes, you have, but you have to turn it into a positive. So, I mean, instead of just feeling very angry and drinking myself to death because I had such an oppressive Christian upbringing, right? <laughs> that, that would be the negative response. It was thinking, how can I harness such things as I have been given? You know, they're all given a set of cards at birth and they've got nothing to do with what class you're born into and they're nothing to do with anything. We're just given a set of cards. And one of the things I was given was I mean, the only real advantage was a very good, not shame to say it, analytical brain and communication skills. I can't do anything else. I can do nothing else. Right? So... When I had my crisis, I was very fortunate that I had a mentor, a wonderful old academic called Margot Heinemann, who said, it's just as obvious as the nose on your face, Edith, that your talents are destining you to be an academic. Go and use that brain in the cause of enlightenment and human happiness. And thank heavens she did. Well, I'm glad she did as well, because when you talk about your secular missionary, when I read Aristotle's Way and read around the other things you've written and read the latest book, which we'll get on to, There is a sort of evangelical feel to your writing, which is full of energy. Let me just explore that a little bit, because, you know, there's Aristotle teaching us how to live a virtuous life. This idea of eudaimonia, Eudaimonia, where you can 
you know, you everything is a measured response to events, yeah. a sort of focused approach to things. And then I see you giving the Baron Memorial Lecture on our foremothers and why they matter. Yeah. It's a fabulously energetic lecture. But you talk about why there are not more women in senior positions of authority mm. and power in higher education. Are you full of righteous indignation about that? Well, I am, but there are worse things than not being, you know, offered fellowships at the British Academy or something. You know, that's having to go to food banks because you couldn't get furlough because you were self-employed. I mean, we do have to keep a massive sense of proportion. I think my age is very important. You know, I, I hit my teens at the beginning of the 1970s at exactly the point of second wave feminism and Kate Miller and Germaine Greer and all of the rest of it. And I was living in a deeply patriarchal family. So I was very clear that my brothers had all kinds of opportunities that I didn't. So that did inspire me. I mean, what's interesting to me about the way women have been absorbed into my own industry, which is education, is that we've been allowed certain kinds of high position. But the two kinds of power we don't get are executive, that is to make appointments. The crucial things are getting onto appointments committees for other big jobs. And we're kept away from big budgets. So it's very, very basic. We're kept away from the things that really make a difference, which is money to finance research projects and executive power, which helps you to improve the lot of younger academics. I mean, I've struggled all my life with trying to get people to hire BAME people, for example. The result of that is I don't get put on appointment committees because everybody says she'll just come and bang that drum. Yeah. So I've got a lot of soft power simply because at some point people realised I was quite good on radio and could communicate and people read my blog. But that is all sort of the establishment academia couldn't stop me getting that because I just got that because the public liked me. But I have been very definitely kept away several times from jobs with executive power and deeply unfairly in terms of objective curriculum vitae. Would you be a vice-chancellor if you could be? Whoa, I'm not sure about that. Not unless I could be sure that we could make higher education a matter of the state again. I don't want to be head of an educational agro-business if I felt that I could actually make a difference. I've watched tertiary education become progressively privatised and campaigned against it you know, I was outside Parliament on that freezing day in December when the last uh, subvention towards fees was removed, when the Liberal Party sold their promises about university education down the river in conjunction with Conservatives. I'm sure you can remember that. Only too well, I'm afraid. But it didn't do any good. So I've almost given up on that at the moment. I think we need a whole scale change of government to get higher education back under state control. But to me, that is a major, major goal. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. With the book that you've just published, A People's History of the Classics, there's some fabulous stories and anecdotes in there. You say you came up through second wave feminism in the the 70s, but you were very moved by the miners' strike and some of the miners' libraries in there. Tell me a little bit about that and what impact that's had on your thinking. Okay, well, after I graduated, I mean, I'd, I'd been very involved in student politics at Wadham College, Oxford, where the English don was a man called Terry Eagleton, and there was quite a lot of left-wing stuff went on there. You know, I joined the SWP for a while as an undergraduate until I was told to make the tea by the heroes of masculine labour. Oh, classic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely classic. But, you know, I, I knew I knew where my politics were. And I actually was in huge debt. When I graduated, I speak modern Greek for various reasons. And I was hired by a shipping company on their management trainee scheme. And my first job was sent to go and provide evidence to rationalise the tugboat crews. Rationalise, you know what that means. In Cardiff and Liverpool docks. That was my very first job. And I really did have a eureka moment. And this was only about two years after I discovered Aristotle. I was going through some very old files in Liverpool in the docks about tugboat men who'd been killed in accidents in the 1950s, which is very, very dangerous territory. And um, their widows getting compensation of like 10 shillings. You know, I, I, I could not believe it. And I left working for this um, company and decided to go back and do a doctorate at Oxford. And that was 1984. And I was pretty central to Oxford cities supporting the mine workers. Our pit was Mardi Pit, which was one of the very last, I'm proud to say, that went back. So I was doing my doctorate and working for the miners and and getting to know them. And they told me all about the miners' libraries, which is an incredible tradition in South Wales. And I said, you know, have you read any Greek or Roman authors or whatever? And it was like, we really like Plutarch. I don't like that Plato one very much. I couldn't believe my ears. They read them all in English. They never had any Latin and Greek. They had to go down the pit when they were children. I swore then that I was going to write one day a history of working class access to the ancient Greeks and Romans because I was increasingly clear, I thought, but as you can imagine, that basically the only people who studied classics are from Boris Johnson's school. You can't get Latin and Greek in the state school system anymore. It's quite impossible. So I swore that. and I've, I've, I'm very, very proud of this book. It is the book of my life. I'm slightly struggling, actually. Now it's done. <laughs> I, I'm serious. What to get up for in the morning? For 35 years, I've been collecting trade union memorabilia and going to the People's History Museum and searching through trade union banners, looking for classical imagery and reading autobiographies. And I'm very glad I've done it because it's a backstory to how people who through sort of self-help and commitment to education, self-education, could overcome real injustice one kind or another whether it's just boredom you know an incredibly boring life of of people who are consigned to manual labor and nothing else they often get very bored if they've got a intellectual streak and just straightforwardly i mean when you read the hansard debates with the early trade union leaders in the labor party in the first part of the 20th century saying could you please stop quoting latin at me to the guys on the other bench it's really inspirational so i am incredibly proud of that book and um, co-rated i must say with a wonderful young academic called henry stead who's a lecturer in latin at st andrews 
he completely got what I was doing and I couldn't have done it without him. He came into my life at a very important moment in terms of me feeling overwhelmed by the sheer labour involved in that book. You could tell it's a lifetime work and a labour of love, but it's more than just a history. I mean, in fact, in the introduction, you describe it as a rallying cry to modern Britain to support the case for the universal availability of classical civilizations and ancient history in schools. Tell me why that's so important. Well, this is great that I'm getting a chance to air this. Thank you. The point is, you have to listen to the numbers here, but Latin and Greek are unavailable except in the private system almost completely now. That's only to 7% of our teens in schools and universities. There is a wonderful alternative actually developed in the 1950s, which are GCSEs and A-levels in classical civilization or ancient history, where you get to read the most important bits of history, the most important bits of philosophy, most important ideas from that 1,500 years between 800 BC and about 300 AD, which changed the human race, all right? And you get to read those and they're incredibly successful. The kids who do them tend to get acquired incredible transferable skills and cultural literacy and they're not phased when Boris Johnson goes on about Pericles. They know exactly who Pericles was. They know exactly what the limitations of Athenian democracy were. You know, they know why the Roman Republic fell. And indeed, they know that there was secular ethics by people like Aristotle that allowed you to think about morality without introducing God into it. They're fantastic qualifications. They're also, this is the crucial thing, they're introducible by a teacher qualified in any subject, right? They do not have to have a classics PGCE. So I've got history teachers in my campaign. I've got physics teachers, got English teachers. If I can find a teacher in every state school in the land who's prepared to introduce them, then we can get these marvellous subjects offered to all our young. That's not Scotland, but it's England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And if people want to know more about that campaign, it's www.aceclassics.org. And we have already managed to introduce these A-levels to a sizable number of new schools. And I'm very, very passionate about it. I think that keeping people away from this incredibly important for 1500 units, the intellectual revolution of the human race, is massive social injustice. There's a chapter in the book where you, I think it's called Staging Class Struggle Classically, (laughs) where you sort of argue that some of the ideas were so challenging to the orthodoxies of the day that it created censorship. It's the story of the Gracchi brothers around Peterloo Massacre. People were very worried that this would actually create revolution. Oh, totally. It was brutally censored. It's a particular play by a man called James Sheridan Knowles, who was an Anglo-Irish lefty. (laughs) and he um, wrote this wonderfully inspiring play. The Gracchi brothers were aristocrats, but both of them lost their lives trying to redistribute land that had been stolen from the Italian poor. They realised that the poor were being treated incredibly badly and the Republic wasn't sustainable with that kind of poverty. Plutarch wrote about these characters in wonderful heroic lives, and he wrote this stirring play which was uh, premiered in 1816 at exactly the point when the Prince Regent was at his most unpopular and there was a terrible famine in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars. And this was played in Glasgow, um, various provincial cities in Britain and in London, but the uh, Lord Chamberlain censored it absolutely brutally. Every rousing speech, which is about the food creaking on the tables of the rich and it's very clear that the Roman gentry are the Prince Regent, you know, hanging out, having banquets in Brighton while his people starve. Unbelievably inspiring story but a lot of uh, working class campaigners for different kinds of issues used to sign themselves either Gracchus or Spartacus or Brutus, the founder of the Roman Republic, 
these were really, really important exemplars for the British working class. I find that fascinating. And there's another bit of your work. Your, in fact, I think this is, was this your first work when you wrote The Inventing of the Barbarian? Yeah. And you talked about the stereotyping of others, which has relevance to perhaps more relevance after the events of the last few months, but it's sort of relevant to nationalism and racism and ethnic stereotyping. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, that was my doctorate. I went back to Oxford. I shouldn't have done. I was miserable at Oxford as an undergraduate. I only went back to Oxford because I was then married to someone I'm no longer married to. He was doing a doctorate at Oxford. So I rather reluctantly went back there. But I had been pretty active in anti-racism I and mean, we're talking the great South African sort of crisis yeah. in the early 80s and apartheid was something that I had campaigned around quite a lot I had always I loved Greek tragedy Greek tragedy was my first great intellectual love and it's full of these non-Greek characters the equivalent of Othello and Shylock in Shakespeare's plays those kinds of characters you know there's a huge racist rhetoric about them and I figured out a way to sort of show that these were written by Greeks, these roles. And it was actually about the Greeks defining themselves. So they were actually trying to define their own ethnic superiority by the way that these barbarians, the Greek called them, called all non-Greeks barbarians because they go bar, 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 and you can't understand them. So I actually was trying to put my own politics into my academic work. And because of the times, and because that was about the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall when that got published, and because of a very important book by a man called Martin Bernal called Black Athena, which was published, and that argued that classicists since the 18th century had routinely whitewashed classical history. And that was actually kicking off riots on American campuses. So I got, I got very lucky in, in the sense of just my career because I got interviewed a lot about ethnicity and the classics, you know, people wanted to hear what I had to say. And nobody'd ever noticed these but ethnicities usually <laughs> did yeah. Greek tragedy before. So that was the race book. <laughs> yeah. I've done the women book, now I've done the class book. So actually the next big book is I'm going back to Aristotle and a really serious, solid academic study of some aspects of his prose style. I like that. <laughs> Let me just go back to class struggle again, though, because the other thing out of this book, and you were the writing, and your sort of evangelical campaign yeah. for the teaching of classics in schools. It's this sense that the Boris Johnsons of this world are taught the classics in order to understand oh. their own elite status exactly. and their own protected status. It functions in an exclusionary way, which I find deeply embarrassing as a classicist. I want it to be an inclusive curriculum. Edith, just to sort of wrap this up a little bit, you're so passionate, I can hear it in your voice. And you've done class, you've done women, you've done race. Shouldn't the next move for you to actually do politics? <laughs> be an MP. And deploy these uh, experiences and understandings you've got to try and make the world a better place. You're talking to somebody who did two years ago as a Labour candidate for Papworth Everard in my village. And well, I did get a lot more votes than the previous Labour person. So solidly um, Tory. I didn't do that because I want a political career. I did that because I was asked by the excellent people who run the local party branch to be a paper candidate they just wanted someone the Labour Party people to vote for and they were actually surprised how well I did yeah. <laughs> no, I was nowhere near but no I can't I thought about this very hard when I was about 30 and decided I think quite rightly that I'm very very emotional part of that passion 
And I am very passionate and have very strong emotions, which is why Aristotle is so useful to me, because he helps me moderate them and harness them in useful directions. I get very, very hurt very, very easily. I get very, very angry. I get very depressed. I think there is a temperament, a Teflon temperament that is necessary for successful politicians. I don't know what you have to say about that. I mean, when I first noticed you, it was over the whole Murdoch thing. You were so brave. Thank you. You were foolhardy brave, if, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know what you mean. And I really admire it, but I don't know. I don't know how do you feel. Do you think being too emotional can actually make you a bad politician? Nobody wants their MP to burst into tears all the time when things get rough. Well, there's a sort of uh, Aristotle balance to get here. Yeah. I mean, what I would say about Westminster is there are people, I think, who are emotionally immature or emotionally undeveloped. Yeah. And, I mean, they're over-indexed in other areas of life. They're very motivated and focused and, you know, mission-driven, but they lack empathy. Yeah. And I would say that in the current political climate we're in, there is a deficit of empathy, which is genuinely a problem for our democracy. Yeah. So I don't think you should have a problem with standing for Parliament if you feel emotion. And you do develop systems for dealing with, you know, daily mail attacks or online trolling. Yeah. And... I do actually genuinely believe there is a, you know, there's always been MPs throughout history who've understood philosophy and its application. Yeah. But I think there's a little niche for that as well in the modern parliament. Yeah, definitely. And now that I'm a retired politician, (laughs) I mean, Aristotle actually helped me. I I mean, I I ended up on a journey that was so profound for me that I realised that I'd probably done everything I can and I needed to do something else in life in order to be fulfilled. You know, he was 49 when he finally got the chance to do what he really wanted. He was 49, and this is one of the most important things about this book. And he says somewhere that he thinks men reach their peak and prime at 49. <laughs> Still got your health, but you've got all this required experience. And um, he, he had had to teach the sons of tyrants, you know, like Alexander the Great. He, he, he'd been at People's Beck and Call. He wasn't a privately wealthy man at all. You know, he was a doctor from northern Greece. And at 49, finally, Alexander crossed over to Asia, never to return. And bump, Aristotle was back in Athens in the democracy in days, founding his own university and running it on his own lines and, and writing his own books. So I think he would thoroughly approve of you finding your best life and the, the best Tom Watson and new goals at half a century. Do you know what he did? That is massive validation. And that's, <laughs> I'm beaming, but that's a great thing to say. And I think you're living your best life, but you need to be the vice chancellor of a university or an MP because you've written it all and done it all. And there's, I know there's more to come from you, but I think you should deploy all these things you've learned in the last 30 years. OK, actually climbing slippery, greasy poles and ladders up management systems at universities, I'd have had to start a lot younger at being administrator than um, I could now. But um, I think politics is more likely, actually. Well, if ever you want to do it, I'll I'll come out of retirement (laughs) and I'll run your campaign for you. And I have got a bit of experience in that. You certainly do. It was wonderful to talk to Edith. I think British universities are very lucky to have her. She's driven by a mission that the classics can make us all better human beings. And that the classics belong to all of us, whatever our class, not just the privileged few. And it was a genuine pleasure to talk to her today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. 
If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producers are Lucy Pullin and Tim Cunningham. This episode was edited by Matt and Scott at Podmonkey. The music by Tom Gray. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.